This event was recorded live at the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival. always had to be the warm-up act for Seamus Heaney. Um, I've just got a couple of announcements to make. I'm Robin Marsak. I'm the director of the Scottish Poetry Library, and it's a very great pleasure to be here with you all this evening for this Highland Park event. First of all, phones. I know this is a very listening and attentive audience, and you certainly won't want to be distracted by your phone. So could you just check that it's either off or on silent? Thank you. Uh, secondly, can I say a word about books? There are 160 pre-signed books by Seamus, <clears throat> the new book, The Human Chain. I have to say this book is now as rare as hen's teeth in Scotland. So if you already have a copy, or if you have a book by Seamus that you want signed, so things that you've pre-bought, you can do that this evening. You need to produce your ticket for this event. You can only produce one book, and Seamus won't be inscribing them, I'm afraid, otherwise we'd be here till midnight. So if you have a book that you've pre-bought, or your own book, and you want Seamus to sign it, uh, you can do that. Otherwise, you can buy one of the pre-signed copies, and they will also be in the signing tent. Now, Roland's asked me to say, that when you all dash for the exit at the end of this event in order to get hold of a book, please don't. Please walk very slowly because it's been wet. I know this sounds like the train announcement. Because of inclement weather, the grass is very slippery out there. Somebody has already gone for a header. We would hate you to do that on your way to the tent. So just, you know, walk calmly. Thank you. And the third announcement is um, purely on behalf of the Scottish Poetry Library. Those of you uh, may know that Seamus Heaney, uh, famous for many things, he's also famous for being an honorary president of the Scottish Poetry Library, as indeed was Edwin Morgan. And these men, these poets, these great poets, have been an enormous support and encouragement to us. Um, if you too would like to follow in their footsteps by being a friend of the library, please don't hesitate to call me afterwards. But to our event. I think Seamus Heaney was last here, uh, possibly in this very tent, uh, to talk about Robert Henryson and read some of his translations a couple of years ago. And he has a very keen affinity with Scottish poets, I think I may say. But it's a very special thrill this evening to find him launching his 13th collection, The Human Chain. He's going to read some older poems and some new poems. And I can say about The Human Chain that it's a book with a strong undertow of loss, that it's written in the shade of mortality, but it has some very luminous memories and that indeed The Human Chain holds. Will you join me in welcoming Seamus Heaney? Well, 
If the human chain holds, it holds very strongly for me in Scotland. A great sense of kinship with Scottish poets from the beginning, a great sense of gratitude. And of course, at this moment, with the death of Edwin Morgan, a great sense of loss. Uh, I think because of his uh, Scottishness, because of his European dimension, because of his translations, because of his longevity, because of his abundance, because of his science fiction, because of his translations, because of his patriotism, because of he was heir of McDermott, because he was heir of Mayakovsky. He was an extraordinary presence. And I think the whole poetic community uh, gradually became more and more aware of his uh, guardianship almost. So it was, it was a terrific thing that he should live so long and be as productive as Walt Whitman towards the end. I think it was uh, Eliot once said unkindly about William Wordsworth that uh, we, we live to hear the still sad music of senility, he said. <laughs> Not with Robin. He was uh, all poets, are young poets, and he seemed to get younger as he went along. As a translator of Beowulf, of course, I salute and bow there to him. But I thought I'd read a poem which uh, links very intimately to some of my own <laughs> concerns in the background. It's set in more or less a bog. It's an archaeological moment. And it's a moment when there's a wee bit of Latin involved. Uh, Res publica scotorum, the Republic of the Scots. And it's, it's his... Uh, it's his science fiction side, but it's also his Scottish side and his, his traditional poetry side. It's a sonnet, and it seems to cover a lot of what he stood for. So it's called The Coin, and it's about this group of aliens coming on a coin, a Scottish coin. It's set in the future, as I say. You probably, many of you know it, but it's... It's a sonnet, and it looks back to a time when there had been a Scottish Republic, and these people in the future don't know what happened to it. The coin. We brushed the dirt off, held it to the light. The obverse showed us Scotland and the head of a red deer. The antler glint had fled, but the fine cut could still be felt. All right. We turned it over, read easily, one pound. But then the shock of Latin, like a gloss, res publica scotorum, sent across such ages as we guessed, but never found at the worn edge where once the date had been, and where as many fingers had gripped hard as hopes their silent race had lost or gained. The marshy scurf crept up to our machine, sucked at our boots, yet nothing seemed ill-starred, and least of all the realm the coin contained. Hats off to Robert. There will be a memorial for Edwin Morgan as part of the festival here next Monday evening. I think Robin will have more details at the end. I have uh, become more and more attracted to a definition of poetry 
given by the American poet um, Stanley Kunitz, uh, who said that poetry is the story of the adventures of the soul, stories of the soul's passage through the valley of this life, of its venture, adventures in history and time. So that's the kind of language I would probably have shied from a few years ago, but age and experience and retrospect lead to new perspective and a readiness to use an old language. So when you have advanced in history and time as far as the eighth decade, it's natural enough, I think, to take stock and uh, recapitulate on the work you've done. Read it, as T.S. Eliot says, in another pattern. One of the most beautiful passages in Eliot, in the four quartets in um, Little Gidding. See, see, they depart, the faces and places, with the self which, as it could, loved them, to become renewed, transfigured, in another pattern. And that passage could well stand as an epigraph to this new book, Human Chain. Um, and I, I'm also very fond of uh, another place where the soul appears. Uh, always Wordsworth's short account of his growth as a poet. He says, fair seed time had my soul, and I grew up fostered alike by beauty and by fear, much favored in my birthplace, and no less in that beloved vale to which ere long I was transplanted. I've had this terrific sense of inflation of myself with Wordsworth, thinking that I had fair seed time in County Derry and grew up there uh, in, and inhaled that world of security, absorbed it, and then uh, went like Wordsworth to a, a cottage in my 30s. Well, he was 28, I think, but I was in my 30s and went to County Wicklow and took another angle on the things and, and uh, re, re, revisited, revisited it and uh, saw it in another pattern. However, I thought that I would begin with an earlier poem where I do actually use the word human soul. Uh, I heard it, I heard this, this is quite, quite a solemn story, a poem in the end, but uh, in the beginning, I heard it as a kind of joke. The great Yeats scholar Tom Henn, T.R. Henn, was at the Yeats Summer School in Sligo many years ago, and my friend Michael Longley heard him pronounce to a group of graduate students late in the evening. He said that the, the human soul, he said, weighs about the same weight as a mature snipe. <laughs> so this is called A Kite for Michael and Christopher our two kids, written in the 1980s. All through that Sunday afternoon, a kite flew above Sunday, a tightened drumhead, a flitter of blown chaff. I'd seen it grey and slippy in the making. i tapped it when it dried out white and stiff. i tied the bows of newspaper along its six-foot tail. But now it was far up like a small black lark. And now it dragged, as if the bellied string were a wet rope hauled upon to lift a shoal. My friend says 
that the human soul is about the weight of a snipe. Yet the soul at anchor there, the string that sags and ascends, weighs like a furrow assumed into the heavens. Before the kite plunges down into the wood, and this line goes useless, take it in your two hands, boys, and feel the strumming, rooted, long-tailed pool of grief. You were born fit for it. Stand in here in front of me and take the strain. Bit stern, but that's what is called for sometime, to take the strain. I might follow that with another early poem which uh, the soul hasn't begun its journey quite. I'm in the cradle absorbing the atmosphere of this particular house, fragrant with a woman baking bread uh, who could be a kind of aspect of the goddess of the hearth, Hestia, but she rejoiced in the name of Mary Heaney instead. So, so Hestia was not one of her concerns. So this is called Moss Bond Sunlight, and it's like a little banister for me. If I get my hand on it, I feel, uh, I feel led back and safe enough. Moss Bond Sunlight. There was a sunlit absence. The helmeted pump in the yard heated its iron. Water honeyed in the slung bucket and the sun stood like a griddle cooling against the wall of each long afternoon. So her hand scuffled over the bakeboard. The reddening stove sent its plaque of heat against her, where she stood in a flowery apron by the window. Now she dusts the board with a goose's wing, now sits broad-lapped with whitened nails and measling shins, here is a space again, the scone rising to the tick of two clocks. And here is love, like a tinsmith scoop, sunk past its gleam in the meal bin. The next poem, among other things, is a stepping stone on the journey through poetry. It was written in the mid-1970s when, of course, the shadow of the Troubles was all over us in the north and all over Ireland. But uh, it goes farther back than that to a moment of great bitter sweetness and uh, more bitter sweet as the years go on, memory of myself and my father going to fish in, a, in the late summer of 1951. Uh, I now realize, of course, that he knew I'd be leaving for uh, boarding school in September. And I knew it too, but I never thought of him as somebody who would have feelings like that. So, so these were tender, quiet moments uh, on the riverbank field. And uh, so nothing much to be said, nothing more said. He wasn't a man given to speech, really. I've often said that my father thought speech was a kind of affectation that it... <laughs> that it kind of interfered with any truth that might be latent there, you know. Yeah. It's called the harvest bow. He used to make these little bows out of uh, wheat straw. Anthropologists will perhaps link them to some kind of Indo-European fertility cult, preserving the spirit of the corn from year to year. But my father was no anthropologist. Uh, 
more of a cockfighter, really, alas. The harvest bow. As you plaited the harvest bow, you implicated the mellowed silence in you in wheat that does not rust, but brightens as it tightens twist by twist into a knowable corona, a throwaway love knot of straw. Your hands that aged round ash plants and cane sticks and lapped the spurs on a lifetime of gamecocks, harked to their gift and worked with fine intent until your fingers moved somnambulant. I tell and finger it like braille, gleaning the unsaid off the palpable. And if I spy into its golden loops, I see us walk between the railway slopes into an evening of long grass and midges, blue smoke straight up, old beds and ploughs and hedges, an auction notice on an outhouse wall, you with the harvest bow in your lapel, me with the fishing rod, already homesick for the big lift of these evenings, as your stick, whacking the tips of weeds and bushes, beats out of time and beats, but flushes nothing. That original town land, still tongue-tied in the straw tied by your hand. The end of art is peace, could be the motto of this frail device, that I have pinned up on our deal dresser, like a drawn snare, slipped lately by the spirit of the corn, yet burnished by its passage, and still warm. The poems in this new book, very different kind of writing from that which is rhymed, stanza, worked, deliberate. The poems in the new book mostly were written in little swoops and uh, were quick, written quickly. And, and um, Thomas Kinsler, the Irish poet, once said he had long given up thought of the reader's comfort. <laughs> <laughs> well, I haven't actually got to that stage yet myself, but uh, I think um, the reader will look twice here and there. But uh, that's, not, that's just fine, I think. The first one should give no trouble at all. It, it, was, uh, it was written in the middle of the night, and it describes, in a sense, why it was written. First poem of the book. Had I not been awake, it's one of those poems where the first line is the title. Had I not been awake, I would have missed it. A wind that rose and whirled until the roof pattered with quick leaves off the sycamore and got me up, the whole of me a patter, alive and ticking like an electric fence. Had I not been awake, I would have missed it. It came and went so unexpectedly and almost it seemed dangerously, returning like an animal to the house, a courier blast that there and then lapsed ordinary, but not ever after, and not now. That was written, as I say, in the middle of the night. But unlike the apostles who are visited by a mighty wind, and unlike the poet uh, Rilke, who was also visited by a mighty wind of inspiration, uh, a few came after that, but not, 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 not uh, Sonus to Orpheus, as translated magnificently by Don Patterson. Uh, but short poems, poems about that uh, 
departure after that evening, those evenings in the along the bank, the, the fisherman's bank. So this is a poem called the Conway Stewart, which was uh, it. It relates back to a poem called Digging, which was one of the first poems I wrote about digging, writing with a pen. The Conway Stewart, most people may know, was a was a rather famous band brand of fountain pen, and uh, my parents bought me one the evening before I went into the boarding school. But to, the boarding school was called St. Columns College. So to link it to, uh, to that, um, I'm going to read a, a poem by St. Colum Kill, a, a, a scribe and a poet with Scottish connections also. He was from Donegal. He had a monastery in Derry. But of course, he spent a lot of time on Iona. And uh, there is a poem attributed to him uh, which goes, um, translated as follows. My hand is cramped from pen work. My quill has a tapered point. Its bird mouth issues a blue dark beetle sparkle of ink. Wisdom keeps welling in streams from my fine drawn sallow hand. River run on the vellum of ink from green-skinned holly. My small runny pen keeps going through books, through thick and thin, to enrich the scholar's holdings. Pen work that cramps my hand, that column kill. The Conway Stewart bought the first evening I was in his college. The Conway Stewart, medium 14 carat nib, three gold bands on the clip-on screw top, in the mottled barrel, a spatulate thin pump-action lever the shopkeeper demonstrated, the nib uncapped, treating it to its first deep snorkel in the newly opened ink bottle, guttery, snottery, letting it rest then at an angle to ingest, giving us time to look together and away from our parting due that evening to my long hand, dear to them, next day. My parents come back into the picture quite a bit in this book, particularly my father. When my mother died, I wrote a sequence of sonnets which seemed to get through that quite briskly, rather more slowly when my father departed. At any rate, I'm going to read uh, a little sequence where my mother does appear first, and then my father in uh, two poems. This one is called Uncoupled. Now, we're a couple, all right, but uh, as happens, the last uncoupling is in store in the human chain. Who is this coming to the ash pit, walking tall, as if in a procession, bearing in front of her a slender pan withdrawn just now from underneath the firebox, weighty, full to the brim with dust and flakes still sparking hot, that the wind is blowing into her apron bib, into her mouth and eyes, while she proceeds unwavering, keeping her burden horizontal still, hands in a tight, sore grip round the metal knob, proceeds until we have lost sight of her, where the worn path turns behind the hen house. Two. 
Who is this, not much higher than the cattle, working his way towards me through the pen, his ash plant in one hand, lifted and pointing, a stick of keel in the other, calling to where I'm perched on top of a shaky gate, waving and calling something I cannot hear, with all the lowing and roaring, lorries revving at the far end of the yard, the dealers shouting among themselves, and now to him, so that his eyes leave mine, and I know the pain of loss before I know the term. This is called the butts, illicit foragings in the, in the father's pocket early on. His suits hung in the wardrobe, broad and short and slightly bandy-sleeved, flattened back against themselves, a bit standoffish. Stale smoke and oxter sweat came at you in a stirred-up brew when you reached in. A whole rake of thorn-proof and blue surge swung heavily like water-weed disturbed. I sniffed tonic unfreshness, then delved past flap and lining for the forbidden handfuls. But a kind of empty-handedness transpired. Out of suit-cloth pressed against my face, out of those layered stuffs that surged and gave, out of the cool, smooth pocket lining, nothing but chaff cocoons, a paperiness not known again until the last days came, and we, we, and we must learn to reach well in beneath each meagre armpit to lift and sponge him, one on either side, feeling his lightness, having to dab and work closer than anybody liked, but having, for all that, to keep working. The last of these father poems involves another handwriting theme and another writing instrument, uh, something that I think has disappeared entirely from, from the shops and from usage. We used to call it a, a permanent ink pencil or a copying pencil. It was one of those that you licked the lead and it, it uh, gave a purple ink mark on it. My father always carried one for some reason. He wasn't much given to handwriting. His expertise was more with cattle than with quills, but uh, uh, this is called Lick the Pencil in his memory. And uh, again, St. Colum Kill arrives uh, towards the end uh, from uh, one of his uh, biographies tells the story of his death, which is repeated at the end of this poem. So, lick the pencil. Lick the pencil, we might have called him. So quick he was to wet the lead, so deft his hand to mouth and tongue flirt round the stub. Or drench the cow, so fierce his nostril grip and peel back of her lip, so accurately forced the bottleneck between her big bare teeth. Or catch the horse, for in spite of the low set cut of him, he could always slip an arm around the neck and fit the winkers on in a single move. But as much for the surprise of it as for the truth, lick the pencil is what it's going to be. A copying pencil, we call, so-called who knows why, that inked itself and purpled when you licked, about as short as the cigarette butts in his pocket and every bit as tangy, 
in constant need of sharpening, then of testing on the back of his left hand, the line as bright as blood lines holly leaves might score on the back of a bird nester's hand, indelible as the glum grey pox white dandelion milk would mark your skin with as it dried. In memory of him, behold those pigmentations moisten and magnify to resemble marks on Column Kill's monk's habit the day he died, the day he didn't need to catch the horse because the horse had come to him where he sat beside a path because, as the Vita says, he was weary. And the horse wept on his breast so the saint clothes were made wet. Then, let him, dear mate, be, said Column Kill to his attendant, till he has sorrowed for me and cried his fill. Those moments with my father were very much points on the journey, but um, the most uh, memorable point on the journey recently was in an ambulance in Donegal four years ago, um, after I woke up paralyzed on one side in a bo boarding house, in a guest house in Donegal, and um, very lucky to have my wife beside me in a twin bed, and uh, had a lot of friends. But I thought I'm going to read a couple of poems from that unforgettable moment. Uh, uh, first, a triptych called uh, three, three Little Ones, called Chanson d'Aventure, Songs of a Happening. Usually they begin as I roved out on a May morning, but it, it was as, as I was carried out <laughs> on an August morning, but there we are. And it has a, an, an epigraph, these poems from John Donne. Love's mysteries in souls do grow, but yet the body is his book. Strapped on, wheeled out, forklifted, locked in position for the drive, bone shaken, bumped at speed, the nurse a passenger in front, you ensconced in her vacant corner seat, me flat on my back. Our postures all the journey still the same, everything and nothing spoken. Our eye beams threaded later fast, no transport ever like it until then, in the sunlit cold of a Sunday morning ambulance, when we might, oh my love, have quoted Don on love on hold body and soul apart. Apart. The very word is like a bell that the sexton Malachi Boyle outrolled in illo tempore in Bilahi, or the one I told in Derry in my turn as college bellman, the hall of it still there in the heel of my once capable warm hand hand that I could not feel you lift and lag in yours throughout that journey, when it lay flop-heavy as a bell-pull, and we careered at speed through Dunglow, Glendone, our gaze ecstatic and bisected by a hooked-up drip-feed to the cannula. The charioteer at Delphi holds his own, his six horses and chariot gone, 
his left hand lopped from a wrist protruding like an open spout, bronze rain a stream in his right, his gaze ahead empty as the space where his team should be, his eyes front, straight back posture like my own, doing physio in the corridor, holding up as if once more I'd found myself in step between two shafts, another's hand on mine, each slither of the ploughshare, each stone it hit, registered like a pulse in the timber drips. When I was in hospital, a lot of things were remembered in another pattern, and especially the wonderful new Testament story of the paralytic cured by Christ. Remember he arrived with his friends and there were too many people around the healer and so the, his friends took him up to the roof, took away a few tiles and lowered him. And the f miraculous, m famous words were spoken, arise, take up thy bed and walk. What I learned from an, in another pattern uh, was that the people who aren't quite mentioned in the story, the people who carry him in, are central to the miracle. So this is called Miracle. Not the one who takes up his bed and walks, but the ones who have known him all along and carry him in. Their shoulders numb, they ache and stoop deep locked in their backs, the stretcher handles slippery with sweat. And no let up until he strapped on tight, made tiltable and raised to the tiled roof, then lowered for healing. Be mindful of them as they stand and wait for the burn of the paid out ropes to cool, their slight lightheadedness and incredulity to pass, those ones who had known him all along. Uh, see, uh, I've not read from this book before, so I'm never quite sure how long this performance will take. I know we have to get out in about 15 minutes. So uh, perhaps I'll read another harvesty poem, but uh, uh, with a wee bit of a bit of sunset in it. Uh, the painter called Derek Hill is mentioned here at the end of the poem and something he said. But this poem was written uh, before my encounter with the ambulance. Uh, so just, just, just to let you know, not everything is obsessed with, with the uh, incident or the episode or whatever you want to call it. But this is called The Baler. All day, the clunk of a baler ongoing, cardiac dull, so taken for granted it was evening before I came to to what I was hearing and missing. Summer's richest hours as they had been to begin with, forklifted, sweated through, and nearly rewarded enough by the giddied up race of a tractor at the end of the day, last lapping a hayfield. But what I also remembered, as wood pigeons sued at the edge of thirty gleaned acres, and I stood inhaling the cool in a dusk Eldorado of mighty cylindrical bales. Was Derrick Hill saying, the last time he sat at our table, 
he could bear no longer to watch the sun going down and asking, please, to be put with his back to the window. Perhaps uh, something a little more miraculous and cheerful. This is a story uh, called St. Kevin and the Blackbird, which uh, is told by Geraldus Cambrensis, uh, one, one, one of the first Normans, a Norman bishop who came over when the Normans landed in Ireland in the 12th century. And like, like any invader, of course, they had to say these people really needed to be invaded because, you know, they, they had these kind of habits. But Geraldus tells also many delightful stories about, about, about Irish uh, saints, among other things. And this is about St. Kevin and the Blackbird. And then there was St. Kevin and the Blackbird. The saint is kneeling, arms stretched out inside his cell. But the cell is narrow. So one turned up palm is out the window, stiff as a crossbeam. When a blackbird lands and lays in it, and settles down to nest. Kevin feels the warm eggs, the small breast, the tucked neat head and claws, and finding himself linked into the network of eternal life is moved to pity. Now he must hold his hand like a branch out in the sun and rain for weeks until the young are hatched and fledged and flown. And since the whole thing's imagined anyhow, imagine being Kevin. Which is he? Self-forgetful or in agony all the time, from the neck on out down through his hurting forearms. Are his fingers sleeping? Does he still feel his knees? Or has the shut-eyed blank of under-earth crept up through him? Is there distance in his head? Alone and mirrored clear in love's deep river, to labor and not to seek reward, he prays. A prayer his body makes entirely, for he has forgotten self, forgotten bird, and on the river bank, forgotten the river's name. Sorry. Another little miracle, which is about poetry in a way. It's not an allegory, and it doesn't need to be allegorized. It's a magical little tale, and uh, it, it comes from an early Irish annals. It's about living in two places at one time, in the imagined world and on the, on the earth where we endure. So, uh, dream time and historical time, where we divide our time. from the annals of Clon MacNoise. The annals say, when the monks of Clon MacNoise were all at prayers inside the oratory, a ship appeared above them in the air. The anchor dragged along behind so deep it hooked itself into the altar rails. And then, as the big hull rocked to a standstill, a crewman shinned and grappled down the rope 
and struggled to release it, but in vain. This man cannot bear our life here and will drown, the abbot said, unless we help him. So they did. The freed ship sailed, and the man climbed back out of the marvellous as he had known it. I think uh, we're getting near the end, and I'm going to read uh, the last three poems in the book. Um, one is an elegy for a friend of mine, David Hammond, who was with me at one of the first Edinburgh festivals I attended, and um, added considerably to the revelry that was already going on. But his revels now are ended. So this is just a little short poem called The Door Was Open and the House Was Dark. The door was open and the house was dark. Wherefore I called his name, although I knew the answer this time would be silence that kept me standing listening while it grew backwards and down and out into the street where, as I'd entered, I remember now, the street lamps too were out. I felt for the first time there and then a stranger, intruder almost, wanting to take flight, yet well aware that here there was no danger, only withdrawal and not unwelcoming emptiness, as in a midnight hangar on an overgrown airfield in late summer. The next poem is called In the Attic. It should be read in Scotland because it figures a national classic. It refers to uh, Traitor Island, uh, to that scene uh, towards the end when Israel Hands is climbing up with a knife and Jim is up at the top with his pistols. And not, not, nothing Jim can do to save himself except shoot Israel Hands. Uh, and the book, remember, is tilted out over the water. I, at that stage, had strong feelings of living in a crow's nest myself because at the skylight of our house was a tall birch tree forever waving and so on. So I wanted to get these two things together and then, then it turned into a four-part poem. I remembered the first time I went to, uh, I think maybe the first movie or picture I saw, what, what of Treasure Island? In one of those amateur showings where you hear the projector going tick, 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 and the, the light's coming in from the window and you don't half see the thing. Uh, so when I went back to my grandfather's house after that, he made a mistake. And I remember the mistake all my life. I thought, how on earth would a man make that mistake? He, he had a, the wrong name for Israel Hands. So, so that leads us through. In the attic, four pieces. Like Jim Hawkins, aloft in the cross trees of Hispaniola, nothing underneath him but still green water and clean bottom sand. The ship aground, canted mast far out above a seafloor where striped fish pass in shoals. And when they've passed, the face of Israel hands that rose in the shrouds before Jim shot him dead appears to rise again. But he was dead enough the story says, being both shot and drowned.
A birch tree planted 20 years ago comes between the Irish Sea and me at the attic skylight. A man marooned in his own loft. A boy ship-shaped in the crow's nest of a life. Airbrushed to and fro. Wind drunk. Braced by all that's thrumming up from keel to masthead. Rubbing his eyes to believe them. And this most buoyant, billowy, top-gallant birch. Ghost-footing what was then the terra firma of hallway linoleum. Grandfather now appears, his voice a waver like the draft-prone screen they'd set up in the club rooms earlier for the matinee I've just come back from. And Isaac Hans, he asks, was Isaac in it? His memory of the name a waver too, his mistake perpetual, once and for all, like the single splash when Israel's body fell. As I age and blank on names, as my uncertainty on stairs is more and more the lightheadedness of a cabin boy's first time on the rigging, as the memorable bottoms out into the irretrievable, it's not that I can't imagine still that slight untoward rupture and world tilt as a wind freshened and the anchor weighed. And this, I began with a kite for Michael and Christopher this is a kite for Avine, who is the daughter of Michael, or second grandchild, as it turns out. There's a first grandchild earlier in the book I hadn't got time for, but never. <laughs> I have a lot of time for her. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is an extract from uh, an Italian poem by Giovanni Pascali called L'Aquilone, the kite. And it... Uh, it transports the kite from Urbino to Anahorish uh, for Avine, which is the name of the little one. So it's called the kite for Avine. Uh, A-I-B-H Fada N. When that name was decided upon, I didn't want to interfere, but my uh, ear said, that's a bit uh, assonantal or, you know, Avine Hini. Uh, <laughs> But as a thing that you don't do. <laughs> so, and uh, God love them, they knew they were saddling her with a name that would have to be spelt often, A-I-B-H-I-N. So my, my son said, let the confusion commence. <laughs> a kite for Avine. Air from another life and time and place. Pale blue heavenly air is supporting a white wing beating high against the breeze. And yes, it is a kite. As when one afternoon, all of us there trooped out among the briar hedges and stripped thorn, I take my stand again, halt opposite Anahorish Hill to scan the blue, back in that field to launch our long-tailed comet. And now it hovers, tugs, veers, dives askew, lifts itself, goes with the wind until it rises to loud cheers from us below. Rises, and my hand is like a spindle unspooling, the kite a thin-stemmed flower, climbing and carrying, carrying farther, higher, 
the longing in the breast and planted feet and gazing face and heart of the kite flyer until the string breaks and separate, elate, the kite takes off, itself alone, a windfall. Thank you very much. One is pre-signed books are in the tent, um, and you can take a book for signing, but just the one. And Seamus mentioned Edwin Morgan. That event's going to be on Monday evening here at the Book Festival, a wonderful galaxy of poets reading poems by Edwin Morgan and making their own personal tributes to him. It's at 8 o'clock. It's free, but it's ticketed. So um, go and get your tickets soon. I just want to say on your behalf, um, thank you to Seamus Heaney. I think he is the only poet in Britain now who would dare to refer unashamedly and plangently to the adventures of the soul. And that we have really heard something very deep and moving here tonight about the soul. I think only Seamus Heaney would dare to put St. Columba and a Conway Stewart pen in the same frame. And I think only Seamus Heaney could put himself um, undergoing physiotherapy and the Delphi charioteer in the same poem. It's a wonderful conceit, uh, but it worked beautifully. He said in one of his earlier poems that the end of art was peace. And I've been watching the audience a bit during this reading, and I've seen scarcely a movement from you, and I've seen you spellbound, and I think that peace created this evening could have only been created by a very great poet indeed. Thank you, Seamus Heaney. Many more Edinburgh International Book Festival event recordings are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk along with a selection of videos.